Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Obadiah, verses 5 through 9. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasure shall be sought after. All the men of your confederacy shall force you to the border. The the men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says Yahweh, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Sometimes it's just too late. Christian counselor Jay Adams, I remember some years ago at a conference him giving this story talking about counseling. Sometimes as a pastor or a friend you counsel someone over and over and you point out that their breaks are are bad. That they need to get those looked at. They need those to be repaired and they ignore you, disregard that, and then you, you know what's coming. One day they top the hill and there are no bricks. They're gone. And, and faster and faster they head down the hill. And as he says, if they survive the crash, then they might be ready to get some help. In most courses, there is a point of no return. And that's no less true when it comes to a person's rebellion against God. As the author of Hebrews warns all of us, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In Romans chapter 1, we read of those who exchanged the truth for a lie, and refused to worship and serve God, and instead worshiped and served the creature. And then we hear those awful words, God gave them up. So we all have a certain trajectory. If we could look at your life right now and say, let's look at the things you're doing and the attitudes of your heart, And then we could project forward to see where this ends, where you're headed. Everyone has a trajectory. Our relationships have trajectory. Our behavior has a trajectory. Our beliefs have trajectory. And as those move forward, there is always the possibility that we will reach a point of no return. There was a time when the Lord shut the door on the ark. And the flood swept everyone outside the ark away. There came a time when the wedding party began and those who were not ready, according to Jesus, for the coming of the bridegroom, were locked out. uh, And in last week's sermon, we saw that 
Pride has a trajectory, and the Bible tells us what it is. Pride goes before a fall. You think you're way up here, but God says you're about to be brought way down to here, to the bottom. So you remember the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers, and these Edomites are the descendants of Esau. They were proud and arrogant, which led to a false confidence, which is a form of blindness. It's ironic that arrogance becomes its own judgment. It's the very thing that ends up undoing the proud. You see, fools can't see very far ahead of them, and so they just continue full speed ahead on their course, and they are always the most surprised. And unless they are truly humbled by it, they won't learn. They'll just redouble their efforts. Or as as Proverbs 17.10 puts it, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Remember that in verse 3 of Obadiah, the Edomites arrogantly ask, Who will bring me down to the ground? That was a very cocky question. What they really, it was a rhetorical question. What they really were saying is, No one. We've got this. So in today's text, we're going to see two other aspects of God's judgment. First, in verses 5 and 6, God declares that the judgment he is about to bring on Edom is, in fact, inescapable and total. Second, in verses 7 through 9, all the escape routes are going to be blocked. There were basically four things the Edomites were relying on. Their wealth, we already read about how they were prosperous. Uh, They're they're in this trade route. They're they're controlling a lot of commerce. They're doing pretty well financially. Uh, Second uh, will be... They're allies, they're friends, they're all these treaties that they have with those around them, so they feel safe there. And then the next thing the passage talks about is, are there wise men? And then finally, they're mighty men. The Edomites had finally reached, however, their point of no return. God had had enough, and now was going to be judgment time. Now, the judgments of God often come incrementally in our lives and in the lives even of nations. I think that's true of our nation. They come a little at a time but as a way of warning. In fact, uh, these are actually a form of his kindness. He could completely and justly destroy immediately, but he doesn't. So, for example, in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So the fact that God doesn't execute judgment right away is his way of giving us time, giving us an opportunity to change, to, to repent, to turn. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, There's coming a day who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient uh, continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man 
who does evil. There is a payday. In verse 5 of Obadiah, God gives two comparisons which demonstrate that while destruction isn't usually total, nevertheless, this time is going to be. Verse 5, if thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? So the first example is that of thieves or robbers. If they had come, at least they wouldn't take everything. They didn't have room. Their trailer was not big enough to take all your stuff. Their pockets were full. At some point, they just left and they left some behind. They have limitations, but the text is saying God has no such limitations. His pockets are infinite. The second example is regarding gleaners. In Leviticus 19 and again in Deuteronomy 24, we read of the practice of allowing the poor to come in after the harvest and to glean the leftovers. The corners of the fields were left untouched to to provide something for the poor. So in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. But when God gets through with Edom, He says, there's not going to be one grape left to be gleaned. Calvin sums up the impression that these verses create. He says this, We hence learn that as men in vain seek hiding places for themselves that they may be safe from dangers, so in vain they conceal their riches. For the hand of God can penetrate beyond the sea, land, heaven, and the lowest deep. Nothing then remains for us but ever to offer ourselves and all of our things to God. If He protects us under His wings, we shall be safe in the midst of innumerable dangers. But if we think that subterfuges will be of any avail to us, we deceive ourselves. Hebrews reminds us, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Jesus warns us all about being presumptuous, about thinking that we have plenty of time. Yeah, I'm going to sow my wild oats while I'm young. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 12, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? And so he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So they have the wealth, and we're going to see that ultimately that wealth of the Edomites is going to be plundered. And so let's look at these other three things they're relying on. They're allies. We would just say our friends. 
So verses 5 through 6, again, it proclaimed the total, coming total devastation of Edom. And so the Edomites, being self-sufficient, looked to their own resources to try to fend off any possible threats. They think they're self-sufficient. Again, I've got this. And Yahweh knew what they were thinking, that they had these things. Again, their wealth, their allies, their wise men, and their military. And so Yahweh answers those presumptions in verse 7. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, verse 8, says Yahweh, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. So the four things the Edomites were relying on not only won't help them avert the coming judgments, those are the very things that will come under judgment. They have entered into covenants, agreements, pacts with their neighbors. These are their so-called friends. But as we will see, there's no honor among thieves There are always people, please listen to this, there are always people who call themselves your friends who will abandon you in a moment and turn on you when it suits them. And let me make a note. This is true for most of us. Most of us have been abandoned by somebody, somewhere, betrayed. But most of you, most of you and I know most of you, have people who love you, who will stand by you no matter what. Those are your real friends. Those are the people who will be by your side when things are hard and rough, and they'll be there through thick or thin. Please note the difference. So let me point out that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, have started out by abandoning and turning on their cousins, the descendants of Jacob. Moreover, they've also abandoned God in the process. And so God is about to stir the pot and frustrate their plans, and he can do that to any one of us at any time. Isaiah 40, 23 and 24, He, that is God, brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Now, if he can do that to kings and princes... God capable of doing this anytime He wants. Our text says that they shall be forced to the border, speaking of the Edomites. In other words, when the trouble of Yahweh's judgment begins, the Edomites are going to be forced to look beyond their own borders for help. Things are going to start to come unraveled internally, and now they're going to start looking around for their friends to come to their aid. And they're going to run to their so-called friends, and instead of the help they were counting on, they're going to find the opposite. They are about to be thrown under the bus. Instead of friends, these nations will become their enemies. How many times have you seen a police show? And this is the way, by the way, it works in real life, too. Uh, Most of us have just seen it portrayed, where partners in crime get arrested And what do the police do? They take one to this room, and they take another one to another room, and they begin to work on them. And what happens? They turn on each other to save their own hide. And so, 
That's what some of your friends will do to you when God's judgments come, when things get rough. And that's when you're going to find out what kind of friends you have. Edom's so-called allies, the text tells us, have deceived them, prevailed over them, and set a trap for them. Remember, Edom was first deceived by its own, her own pride. She deceived herself first. And now she's deceived by her allies and friends. Edom was treacherous toward her brother, uh, Je- uh, uh, Israel, the Israelites, Judah, uh, at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. And now we're going to see that what goes around comes around. Remember what Jesus says, the judgment that you use will be used on you. The phrase, those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you, is probably a reference to the fact that it was common for those who entered into a covenant with someone, with with one another, to seal it with a covenantal meal. That's what we're going to do in a few minutes when we come to the Lord's table. Covenantal betrayal was egregious. David speaks of this in Psalm 41, 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. We've had dinner together many times. I had him over to the house. And yet, now they're going to turn on me. And so that makes it all the more treacherous. Obadiah goes on to speak of those who shall lay a trap for you. There are always people who pretend to be our friends, but in reality, they are simply opportunists. There are boys, believe it or not, who will tell girls they love them. There are dealers who just want you to have fun. There are false friends who are there only for what they can get, and if they stop getting it, they're gone. If they don't love God, they won't love you either. Again, Calvin comments, All the compacts or agreements then which the ungodly and the despisers of God make with one another have always something vicious intermixed. It is therefore no wonder that the Lord disappoints them of their hope and curses their counsels. This is, when the re- this is then the reason why the prophet declares to the Edomites that those whom they thought to be their, their best and most faithful friends would be their ruin. And then Obadiah inserts this little comment. No one is aware of it. In other words, the Edomites didn't have a clue what was about to happen to them. The know-it-all Edomites are clueless. So that's the problem of fair-weather friends. What about the wise men? Edom is a wealthy nation. They have a big structure, big government. And so verse 8 addresses the alleged wisdom in Edom. Will I not in that day, says Yahweh, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Now the word day is interesting, is used 12 times in this short book of Obadiah. It's used in two senses. The first, it's used repeatedly in verses 11 through 14 and refers to the day when the people of God suffered much at the hands of the Edomites who had sinned against them so grossly. The second is the day of Yahweh, which is coming against all the nations. It's mentioned again in verse 15. 
It's the day which is the guarantor of Edom's doom. In the case of Edom, they're going to be utterly destroyed, completely wiped out. These two days are linked. The day of Edom's sin is the cause of the day of Edom's judgment. Like the proud men at the Tower of Babel, God is about to confuse Edom's wise men. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be not wise in your own eyes. The Apostle Paul refers to those who profess to be wise but became fools. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the age? Has not God made the wisdom of the world, made foolish the wisdom of the world? So Obadiah is probably referring to the court counselors who have given political and military advice to the rulers. These were the cabinet, if you will, the diplomats, the military planners. In other words, what we would call the best and the brightest. Now, the best way to destroy these wise men is to have their counsel turn out to be utterly wrong and to frustrate their predictions and their plans. Do you know how easy it is for God to frustrate your plans? This made me think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? You got the picture? The nations, why are they in such an uproar? And they're plotting this empty thing, this thing that cannot come to pass. And the kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed, Jesus, saying, let us break their bonds. Whose bonds? God the King and His Son. Let us break their bonds in pieces. They can't tell us what to do. And cast away their cords. God's law is so restraining of us. We want to be God. And then it says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. And you see God laughing at the nations. Literally holding them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. His laughter now has changed. And distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Now, in, their, in our text in Obadiah, the mountains of Esau are a reference to the high places of Edom. By the time we get to the end of Obadiah, we read this in verse 21. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. Now, we have a kind of already not yet situation here. This is happening to Edom, but it's also going to happen at the end of time. It's actually already, again, with Jesus. Jesus, remember in Psalm 2, where is he set? He's on what mountain? My holy hill of Zion. What's happening here with Edom is Zion, the mountain, is going to rule over the mountains of Esau. 
And so at the end, the mountain of Yahweh will dominate all the other mountains or kingdoms of the world. And that's why John writes in Revelation 11, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. That's how the story ends. And we get these little snapshots, these smaller stories within the bigger story to warn us, to tell us what to expect, to see how this plays out. Again, Calvin's comments are apropos. A little bit longer here. Yet the worst blindness is when men become inebriated with the false conceit of wisdom. When therefore anyone thinks himself endued with understanding so that he can perceive whatever is needful and that he cannot be circumvented, his wisdom is insanity and extreme madness. It would indeed be better for us to be idiots and fools than to be thus inebriated. Since then, the wise of this world are insane. The Lord declares that they will have no wisdom when the time of trial comes. God indeed permits the ungodly for a long time to felicitate themselves uh, on account of their own acumen and counsels as he suffers the Edomites to go on prosperously. And then, excuse me, and there are also many at this day who felicitate themselves on their success, successes, and almost adore their own cunning. Boy, I'm smart. Then we must be also beware of trusting in our own understanding and of despising our enemies and of thinking that we can ward off any evil that may impend over us. But let us ever seek from the Lord that we may be favored at all times with the spirit of wisdom that it may guide us to the end of life. For he can at any moment take from us whatever he has given us and thus expose us to shame and reproach. Isaiah also warned, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And the Proverbs proclaim simply, do not be wise in your own eyes. Now we turn to the fourth area where the Edomites were trusting and hoping and had placed their bets, if you will, and that was their mighty men. Verse 9. Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed, to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Along with the fall of wisdom, then comes the diminution of power. By the end of this verse, Edom's four pillars have fallen. Riches, allies, wisdom, and might. A house of cards. The crash is complete, and they're now past the point of no return. You know what? When you read that your mighty men are dismayed, you're in trouble. You're not so big anymore. The word that's translated dismayed can also and is often is translated in other places in the Old Testament with a variety of words. Afraid, broken, abolished, discouraged, confounded, beaten down, terrified, and shattered. Do you have the picture? God's not playing games with the Edomites nor is he playing games with you or me or anyone else. Teman, this is a little interesting sidelight here, 
was a city, was another way of referring to all of Edom since it was one of Edom's major towns that was named after one of Esau's grandsons. Now when Obadiah says, to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter, the term everyone shouldn't be taken literally. For example, in the New Testament we read that, uh, about John the Baptist and it says, then, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. This is just a hyperbolic way of speaking. We might say something like, everyone was at the picnic yesterday. This is simply a rhetorical way of saying a majority or a very large number. Malachi chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, shed some light on the fact that uh, here there were some individuals left. In, In Malachi it says, But Esau I have hated and laid waste to his mountains and his heritage, For the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom has said we have been impoverished, this is after the judgment, but we will return and build the desolate places. So they had big plans. They were going to make a comeback. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I guess Edom was going to be great again. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, Yahweh is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So there may be a few Edomites left to testify. But as a nation, Edom was finished and would never rise. They were past the point of no return. Now, two other quick things here. One is just a side note. This is interesting how history plays out. As an adult, Esau gave away his birthright to his brother Jacob in exchange for some red stew or soup because he was famished. You remember the story, right? I think in Hebrew it's just called red stuff. It's kind of a literal translation. This was apparently the reason he was called Edom. I'm guessing this must have been a nickname for Esau because in Hebrew it sounds like the word for red. Between the Old and New Testament times, the Edomites were once again controlled by the Jews. In fact, many of them were forced, at least outwardly, to embrace Judaism. And in the Greek language, that gained prominence, that gained prominence during this time. Their names became uh, the Edomians. King Herod was an Edomian. And he ruled at the time of the birth of Jesus. So you got it? King Herod's an Edomite a descendant of Esau. He also commanded the deaths of all males two years old and under in Bethlehem in order to kill the threat of a Jewish king. So the Edomites, by then known as the Edomians, would eventually disappear from history. The story is still playing out. One of the last mentions of the Edomians was a reference to the land of Edomia by the church leader Jerome around A.D. 400. And so the prediction that Esau, the Edomites, would serve Jacob, the Israelites, proved true. Therefore, these proud people were brought down by Yahweh and never rose again. And so we may safely conclude that that is the ultimate end of all proud people. 
So, we, too, are prone to place our confidence in our wealth, our allies, our friends, our wisdom, and our might. These two are idols for destruction. Now, as I look at the Bible, look, there, there are plenty of places in the Bible that we can go to that are uplifting, joyful, full of promise. We, we, we've done that many times from the pulpit and lessons. There's lots to say. We've done whole lessons on the joy of the Lord. But there are also some very stern warnings. And we don't get to just skip over those because we don't like them. Oh, that's so negative. You know what? We need negative and positive. These need to be juxtaposed against each other because they're both true. And we're, we're whistling through the graveyard if we don't listen to those also. Jesus wasn't embarrassed about them. Here's what he said. The Son of Man will send out his angels, his messengers, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness who are disobedient to the Lord and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In case you missed it, he says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the Apostle Paul warned similarly in Second Thessalonians 1. Again, you got the picture of Jacob and Esau. We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Remember the story here in Obadiah. God's people were being persecuted by the Edomites. Which is manifest, he says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Do you believe this? Do you believe God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? Do you believe that? Then you must also believe this. They're both God's Word. And they ought to be, it ought to be sobering to every one of us to take this life seriously. These things were preserved to instruct us so that we can avoid this judgment, that we can flee the wrath to come, that we can cling to Him, our Savior, who can rescue us, save us, 
work in us, change us, transform us, and equip us and prepare us for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we may not take lightly uh, the inspired record of your judgment upon the proud and the presumptuous, for we too are often proud and presumptuous. May we say with the psalmist, while I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And may we heed the warning of that same psalm, do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. And may we put no confidence in our wealth, our friends, our wisdom, or our might, but only in the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to read from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46. Jesus said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did, and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The Edomites thought that they had built on the rock. They were living in the mountains, after all. But it turned out they had actually built on the sand. They trusted in all the wrong things. As we come to partake in this covenant meal, we renew our pledge to place our confidence in the Lord and to pledge our fealty, our loyalty to Him alone. Psalm 62, 1 and 2. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. O Lord, let us remember in all of our thoughts of you that you are God and we are men, and therefore we ought to be humble. We acknowledge that whatever true knowledge we possess, we first received it by the revelation of your knowledge, and that only as we have come to think your thoughts after you, do we obtain any true knowledge at all? Thy word is truth. Father, your omniscience is of great comfort to us in this age wherein you have placed us. For all the evil conspiracies of men are known by you. No adversary escapes your notice. You can't be deceived by the craftiest men or the most closely guarded secret. Because you know all, you're worthy to be our, object, our only object of trust. Because you see the secret places, so too you hear our secret prayers, regard our secret fears, and bless our secret service. You know our sins, you know our frame, you know our needs, but praise you, Father, you also know the righteousness of the Son and the value of his sufferings on our behalf. You understand better than we do what we have committed. And you also understand better than we do what our Savior has merited for us 
Without your omniscience, O Lord, the whole world would be mere chaos and confusion. Replace now our ignorance with the knowledge of your word. We pray, pray, Lord, that you would bless our day, our meal, our rest and fellowship. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.